welcome to the Defender Podcast, a resource to help mobilize and equip the body of Christ to manifest the gospel to orphans and vulnerable children. This podcast is a ministry of Lifeline Children's Services, and I'm your host, Herbie Newell. Today is Wednesday, February the 10th, 2021, and I'm coming to you from Birmingham, Alabama. And today I am so privileged to be joined once again by Chuck Johnson. And Chuck was with us last week uh, as we talked about the 40th anniversary of Lifeline Children's Services. Chuck and Susan served so dutifully for 17 years at Lifeline as staff members, as the assistant director for Lifeline. And then for many years, Chuck served as the executive director at Lifeline Children's Services. So Lifeline's had three executive directors, Mr. Carr, our founder, Chuck Johnson. And then I've had the opportunity these last several years to serve at Lifeline. But Chuck left Lifeline to be the president and CEO at the NCFA, the National Council for Adoption. I've loved to see how NCFA has grown. And one of the things that I just love about Chuck is his character. And he takes his character wherever he goes. And, you know, since my tenure at Lifeline, I've been able to work with NCFA. But it's been really in the last 12 to 14 years that Chuck has been at the helm that I've seen just the character of NCFA really grow Um, solidify and to become not just a great policy and a great uh, organization that's speaking out for the rights of children, but an organization that is truly respected. And and Chuck is respected also as a a leader. He has uh, written so many things, been interviewed on so many programs, including the Today Show and Good Morning America, Fox News, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and so, so many other periodicals and news programs. And Chuck, we're so grateful to have you here today to talk a little bit more about uh, just the state of adoption, the state of foster care, and the work of NCFA. But before we hear again from Chuck, I want to remind you that we have hundreds of helpful articles, activity ideas, and materials on our resource page. These topics include adoption, attachment, siblings, medical needs, children's behavioral, behavioral challenges, birth parents, and how to address grief, trauma, and so, so much more. Our team at Lifeline has researched and dug through and presented these articles and these presentations, and we want these presentations and articles to be a great resource for you and your family as you seek to attach to your child, as you seek to bring in your child into your home, but ultimately as you seek to reach their heart for the glory of the gospel of Christ Jesus and to disciple them in the way that they should go. So to get some of these resources, go to lifelinechild.org backslash resources. Again, that's lifelinechild.org backslash resources. Or as always, you can go to our show notes for more details. Well, Chuck, what a pleasure it is to get to visit with you again. And as we said, you uh, you left Lifeline and you moved to NCFA. And so a lot of what the Lord used to, to, to bring you out of Lifeline was this opportunity for to go from the local level or regional level to really go to a national level of advocacy and adoption policy. So tell us a little bit about NCFA and the work the NCFA does for agencies, for children and for adopted families. Well, I think our name, National Council for Adoption, is pretty fitting. Um, That's what we are. We're just a a nonprofit organization focused on adoption, whether it's adoption uh, from foster care or domestic infant adoption or intercountry issues. And we try to provide a a passionate voice for kids to have families and 
for expectant parents and birth parents to, to be treated well and, and uh, you know, and to really advocate for the kids in U.S. foster care waiting to be adopted. And so we kind of do that in a, in a, a very, uh, we're passionate about our cause, but one of the things that I committed to when I got here was what I call responsible advocacy, which means we're going to tell the truth. We're not going to spin adoption. We, uh, we don't need to. It's a wonderful institution in itself. But, um, and so to, to tell the truth and to do things right and to make adoption, try to make adoption work better for everybody. Well, Chuck, you know, there's a few things that obviously have been in the works for a while. Um, you know, one of those things, and, and I've actually had the opportunity to work with you on it. As a matter of fact, I remember right before I started the job, you and I kind of had a, da- a day where we downloaded and one of the things that you talked about was the adoption tax credit. And I remember before I even started at Lifeline, I would go leave work uh, at the CPA firm that I was working at and go to the law school library at Sanford University here in Birmingham and literally research the history of the adoption tax credit so I could be briefed and know how we could utilize it. Can you give us some insight into the discussion about the, the refund of the adoption tax credit? Sure. And just the adoption tax credit, you know, Herbie, in the same way I left you just hundreds of thousands of pages of documents to, uh, to uh, turn into electronic copies. That was something that we've done here and just taken, I mean, we had a whole basement filled with, with things. And it was just really, I found one of the things I just found recently was something in the uh, federal register or the congressional record actually, where in 1981, they're talking about the national, then the national committee for adoption. That's what we were called. Um, advocating for the adoption um, tax credit. And so from the very beginning, the creation of the credit um, was a very part, a big part of NCFA's history. Um, a few years ago, if you remember, uh, we, we had to fight to, to preserve the credit when it was on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. And again, groups like Lifeline and others really stepped up to, to advocate for that. Um, and then, you know, uh, and so the, the adoption tax credit is currently a permanent part of the tax code, but it is um, um, from the majority of its uh, existence has been a non-refundable credit. It has been a refundable credit um, uh, in 2010 and 11. And so the goal is, is to make it a refundable credit. And I know, I mean, I could try to explain it, but you have the CPA, CPA background. If you want folks to understand the difference between a refundable and non-refundable credit, or I could try to explain it. What, what do you think? Well, I'll take a stab and then you can hit anything. You know, what, what folks need to know is currently the way the adoption tax credit is, you're not going to get anything back if you don't owe any taxes. So it's it's actually replacing your taxes so that it wipes your tax burden away. Uh, it, it's better than a mortgage tax credit, but it's not as good as a refund. So uh, the best way I can think about to help people understand the refund is those those checks you got in the mail, um, the stimulus checks, uh, that's not money that you got necessarily because they're looking at your tax burden this year. It's an amount that they're giving back because you're a U.S. citizen. That's the way the tax credit was for several years is that you literally got back that amount because of your adoption, not because of the taxes that you had put in. And so obviously, For some families, there's an adoption tax credit, but if they're not paying enough in taxes, then they may not be able to utilize all of that tax credit, or it might go across five different years. And as Chuck knows, and so many others know, that money is needed when you adopt, not over a five-year period. 
And that's that's great. And so the goal is is to make it a refundable credit. And if you look at the um, IRS data, families who are adopting domestically or internationally, whether it's immediately or over a five year period, do get a lot of benefit from the adoption tax credit. They, you know, they I know it's a tremendous benefit to my wife and I when we adopted um, our two children. Um, but if you look at the income data, um, families who are adopting from foster care. You know, they tend to be bill-paying, you know, uh, hardworking Americans, but they don't always have a high federal tax liability. Yet, um, many of those families who are adopting from foster care are actually taking on children, sometimes with uh, in sibling groups, uh, much older children, children with um, special needs, and so um, you know, their ongoing costs. They may not pay a lot to adopt, but their ongoing costs um, can be very high. And so, you know, we want to see uh, those families, and there really is a moral and a fiscal argument in favor of refundability. You know, the moral argument is, is it does, we all know that it's, it does help families who are thinking about adopting, move forward with adopting. Uh, and particularly in foster care, you know, many of the children who are being adopted out of foster care are being adopted by their foster families. And so to really step up and, and move forward and legalize what's in their heart give the child permanency, the, uh, the adoption tax credit can do that. It does do that. We know that it does. Um, and then if you look at just the fiscal responsibility of it, uh, you know, a one-time 13,000 plus credit versus the hundreds of, you know, whatever, nobody knows how much it costs to keep a child in foster care. But, you know, I think it's, I think most people would know that it's more than a hundred thousand a year. And so, you think about that, that a one-time credit, if that's what really allows the child to achieve permanency in the long run, it'll be a tremendous savings to the adoption tax, or to the uh, to the American taxpayers. And so it's one of those rare legislative things where there's a cost with it, but then the cost is offset in a greater way um, by the cost savings that come. And so um, we're hopeful. Um, you know, we've been working for years to see that it, it's a, a refundable credit. We had to settle a couple of years ago that it uh, by saving it and preserving it. But um, now we're just hoping that we can make it a refundable credit. We've already talked to the, um, the sponsors of the legislation in the last Congress. We know that they're going to move forward with it um, um, in the new Congress, uh, maybe as, uh, in the next month or two. Um, and so when it comes out, we are hoping that, uh, you know, that it'll be made uh you know, it become law at some point just because mm -hmm. of the benefits that it has. So maybe there's talk about even including it maybe in a COVID relief package. You know, legislation doesn't have to always make sense of where it is. And then, you know, there's always the, with the new Congress uh, and the new administration talking about reforming um, the tax code. And if they do that, it'd be a great opportunity to um, see the credit uh, made refundable. Yeah, it's it's certainly something that is needed for children and families and would be a great benefit to so many. The other thing that you even talk about seeing an adoption tax credit attached to COVID legislation, you know, one of the things, though, that's also talked about and certainly was a hot button topic, even between uh, the last administration and this current administration has just been, you know, really a, a hot button topic is immigration. And you know, a lot of people have talked about DACA and immigration reform and, you know, unaccompanied minors and all types of immigration issues. But one of the things I think the, the most of the population doesn't think about is how adoption, especially international inter-country adoption, 
is so intrinsically tied to immigration. Well, one of the pieces of, of legislation that I know you and the NCFA have, have been so outspoken for is the Adoption Adoptee Citizenship Act. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about it, why it's so important, uh, as well as just how we can be praying and advocating for the Adoption Citizen, Adoptee Citizenship Act? You know, I'm not going to get into it here, but it's an interesting story, just how close we came to seeing the Adoptee Citizenship Act passed two years ago. I mean, we were one member of Congress away from at least getting that through the, through the Senate. Um, but, um, you know, you roll your sleeves up and get back to work. Um, this is legislation for me because, you know, I've been a strong advocate for intercountry adoption. NCFA has been a strong advocate for intercountry adoption. I just feel that this is almost a, like a moral imperative that we get this legislation passed. You know, we're talking about children who were adopted by U.S. citizens. Hmm. These are children and they adopted through the process that was prescribed at the time. And, you know, it's changed over the years. But uh, and these are children or now some cases adults who are here legally. There's no question that they're here legally. Um, uh, and a path of citizenship was created for them by Congress. There is a path of citizenship. But because of several things, there are thousands of children and adults now who were adopted internationally who don't have citizenship and most don't know it. It either happened because when we passed the, uh, child, the uh, child Citizenship Act of 2000, they did not retroactively extend the citizenship to people who've been adopted you know, generations before. And so they're potentially adults, senior adults who are here legally and, and they believe themselves to be American citizens and they may not be. And so we're trying to retroactively fix that. And then there's a group of people who, who adopted children who just either they came here and because of a very convoluted, confusing process, um, their parents either did not complete the citizenship for them or they never got around to it. So they didn't know that they needed to do it or they didn't realize how important it was. And so that's what this legislation will, will fix this. You know, there's a whole population of children who came here in fully finalized adoptions who did not get citizenship because of a technicality that both parents had to be part of the the in-country process. And I think a lot of us miss that in practice. And then there are a lot of people who come here on guardianship adoptions who's, um, again, here legally, but their parents never completed the process. And so this legislation would, would retroactively extend that citizenship. And again, these are people that, uh, whether you're Republican or Democrat, um, there aren't people who want to deny these children citizenship. But you know, for whatever reason, we just had a hard time getting this legislation through because of political reasons, not necessarily for opposition to it, but maybe opposition to immigration reform, or whenever you start having this conversation, you know, um, another group of people want to just put a whole bunch of kids mm -hmm. who are not internationally adopted children into this process. And so it's just really hard to have an immigration conversation in this country right now. Um, but hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll see some progress on this. And there's just a lot of movement on it, including from the adult adoptee community and, and NCFA and, and, you know, really every other organization is committed um, in fighting to see this, this change finally come. I think more even current events to, you know, obviously the whole world has been impacted by COVID-19. And certainly I know for one, uh, as an organization that participates in intercountry adoption, 
that it's been real hit and miss with intercountry adoption because of travel and because of a global pandemic. How have you just from NCFA seen the effects of COVID-19 on your member organizations? Well, there's an immediate impact right after um, COVID, as you know, where, you know, there were 60 something families who were, who had left prior to COVID who were stuck all around the world. And, and there were travel restrictions and airlines had quit flying. And so um, NCFA and a lot of groups, we weren't the only group, but, you know, working with the Department of State to try to bring those families here and those children here. <laughs> and by and large, I think most of them, um, I think if not all of them have been able to make it back. But, you know, there's still, even as some countries open things back up and, you know, you could probably give a list of those countries where that have returned, you know, it's still just, um, China is still not, uh, you know, back open. And, um, and so families now have, and that's really not the U.S.'s decision at all. This is really coming from China. There is a hope, I and mean, I think we can pray for it, that, you know, mm-hmm. China may lift some of the travel restrictions in the next few months. And I know that's longer than most people. They want it lifted now. But, you know, politically thinking, I'm just not sure that that'll happen. I think a successful, this is what I've been told by policymakers, a successful vaccination process here and there will allow um, adoptions to, to reopen. But yeah, it's just, and again, Herbie, and you know this, I can, I would love just to sit down and talk about what Lifeline has done through all this, but trying to figure out a way to even provide social services, you know, mm. in, in all adoptions virtually, and then the courts and all these kinds of things. Um, and, and, and some places are at this point are doing pretty good. And you're seeing, I won't say things are back to normal, but, you know, they're certainly better than they were a few months ago. But it's taken, you know, just a lot of advocacy and innovation and thinking outside the box to satisfy and serve and take care of people um, during a pandemic with, with stay-at-home orders and people afraid to have folks come into their home and workers not wanting to go into homes and how to provide those services in a quality way virtually. I have concern. I mean, I, I think it's a, a, a temporary solution. But, you know, I put up, you know, even though I love these teleport medical visits now, um, you know, they're still not, you know, really taking your temperature. And, you know, I have a thyroid thing and, you know, he used to always touch my neck to make sure the thyroid was a normal. You know, you're just missing all that, even in these virtual visits. As a caseworker, I just put so much. It's not just what people are telling you, but it's watching and and looking around and, you know, discerning. Um, That was something I. I think the Lord, one of my spiritual gifts was that discernment. And it's just hard to discern when you're missing, you know, three quarters of the, the data. So I just know it's something every agency, every child welfare worker from public sector to private sector has really struggled with providing these services virtually. And then kind of was we were even talking about, you know, uh, international. And certainly we could we could talk here for the rest of the day. But they're the Hague Treaty. And, you know, a lot of families, they don't know the Hague Treaty as intimately as you or I do. And I know that you and the NCFA have done so much to advocate both for children, but also for adopted families on the Hague Treaty. Um, I think you and I both would agree that in concept, it's not a bad concept, but in practicality application, it's really been a nightmare in a lot of different ways. And I think you and I, being in this world, know that it hasn't uh, it hasn't really done what it was set out to do in the in the onset. Um, but 
but kind of boiling it down for families that might be listening who aren't thinking about trying to uh, look at accreditation standards. Why is the Hague Treaty so important to international adopted families? Well, and, and you're right, Herbie. The problem, in my opinion, is not the Hague Treaty itself. I mean, and you know that's in contrast to what other, some of our love, you know, friends that we love and care for you know, disagree with us on that. It's not the Hague. If you read the Hague, the Hague really was a, a, a wonderful plan to, uh, I think, formalize um, intercountry. It makes for a lot of uniform standards of practice. You know, that's really my first way of getting involved in international accuracy was at Lifeline when we were working with the, the Chinese government on home studies. And, you know, they were just sh showing me this, the difference between home studies. And some were even handwritten and some were three pages and others. And, and really, out of, I mean, what they had picked our home, Lifeline's home study. Uh, this was before Hague. And they just loved how we laid out the information. And so even like our cover pages actually became um, mandated for all agencies to fill out that cover page um, prior to Hague going into effect. So it's, it's in our opinion, um, it's um, an international issue. If you look at the debate that takes place, there's a lot of um, nationalism that's really come in, into play. <clears throat> One of the issues is over the principle of subsidiarity and how that um, is uh, interpreted differently in other countries. And, and again, if you read it to me, it's pretty clear that, you know, that goal is, is to obviously um, look at the national solutions first in a timely manner if the child can be reunited we all want that to their biological family. If the child can be adopted domestically, we want that. Um, but the Hague is pretty clear and the principle of subsidiarity is pretty clear that if those aren't reasonable options in, in a timely way, you need to look at intercountry adoption before you put a child for the rest of their life in an institution or long-term foster care. And if you read that, it's pretty self-explanatory to me. I don't even know why we're disagreeing over it, but there are people who would say, that you need to spend years and years trying to achieve those first um, goals. And so, and, and so you look at that, you look at the national thing. And of course you, again, if we talked about sending thousands of American kids to other countries, there'd be Americans all over the place in an uproar. And so you have to think that even impoverished nations love their children and, and have this national view that, um, you know, it, it, this is not a good thing that children need, stay in their country and their culture. And so you can debate those things and how to best achieve that. And then, you know, we would say that there have been seasons, even with the Department of State, where we think they've, you know, either focused incorrectly or, you know, really I always say they relish their regulatory role, but not so much their advocacy role, which, you know, they were given. And I was talking to former Senator Mary Landrieu just the other day about this issue. And she was one of the chief architects of, the um, Intercountry Adoption Act of 2000, which laid out the Hague Plan, you know, and she would tell you Congress wrote legislation that really made intercountry adoption a proactive priority for the U.S. And, you know, she's convinced that the bureaucrats sometimes in an unintended way and maybe in some cases you know, in a purposeful way have just really misapplied the Hague. And that's why I'm not going to give up on the Hague. Um, we're going to continue to look at ways to make the whole Hague and the regulatory process work better. Um, you know, we don't want to go back to 
In fact, we could not go back to the old system. I can tell you, I'm quite confident China would not be able to work with the U.S. if we were not a Hague um, country um, and would not work with us. And so the goal would be to figure out ways to work in tandem with these countries um, and come up with solutions that uh, allow for inter-country adoption and allow for the the whole process to be governed. I mean, we want regulation. Uh, we don't oppose good regulation at all. But we want to make sure those regulations make sense and, and don't have unintended consequences. And so that's part of that battle. And, you know, and I have someone on staff who now, you know, I've been out of all of this for, you know, over 17 years now, but, you know, I have um, Ryan Hanlon here who is just an expert on these things. And it's just amazing to let him, watch him read the regulations and come up with, you know, 10 different um, ideas to make it work better or, um, or how it's not being, you know, enforced correctly. So that's our goal. Um, I wish I could say there were immediate fix to it, um, but I just think this is one of those battles, the long haul, you know, we're not going to give up on making the Hague work and make and allow not allowed to be used in a way that's harmful to children, but allows for children who will benefit from inter-country adoption to be adopted. Kind of going back to the domestic side, and I, I know that uh, in your position, you represent faith-based as well as secular agencies. And one of the things that as a faith-based agency that we can look at the last four years and say is that from HHS, Health and Human Services, there are a lot of real strides to protect uh, faith-based agencies, faith-based organizations, while not necessarily, um, you know, being critical towards more secular. Uh, it, it really was a, a reach across both sides that, that helped a lot of faith-based agencies. You know, with this new administration coming into the White House, what challenges are there that you see for faith-based child welfare agencies? Well, and I think this is something I hope every faith-based provider is praying uh, faithfully for. I mean, there's legitimate reason to be um, concerned. You're right, there have been some executive type orders that have come out in the last couple of years that did provide some protections, but you know, those are temporary. They can be rescinded rather quickly. Um, and, you know, I've just never, in terms of like a public discussion of an issue, I've just never seen the turn, the tide turn so quickly where the, um, where the faith-based providers are, are um, you know, really um, stigmatized in such a way, you know, and I don't get that. Um, and, you know, and so we've seen several providers and some states have to um, stop providing even quality services. And that's something that like in some states, you've seen the, the best private provider, the highest rated provider have to stop providing services. So it's happening in two ways, Herbie. One is kind of at the state level where um, state legislatures or governors uh, use the licensure process to require agencies, faith-based agencies to make decisions about really include like what families you'll work with and whether or not you'll work with all families who are of a different faith or an LGBT situation. And so we've seen in several states um, where the, the ability to maintain a state license without changing your religious criteria, um, agencies had to quit providing um, either adoption or foster care services. The second way you've seen it really kind of happen is in the way that the money is provided. And so it's federal, you got federal funding, state funding, local funding. And so, um, some of you know, say some states and some cities have 
who are in contract with private agencies, uh, no, no dispute about the quality of their services, have said that, um, you know, we can't continue um, paying you, we can't be in contract with you unless you change your criteria. Um, so there is actually a Supreme Court decision over that very particular issue originating out of the city of Philadelphia. So we're hoping that um, that'll provide some clarity. But this is just something, you know, I've been in this, um, in the faith, you know, I was in the faith-based world um, where, you know, everything was, I mean, we're following the scripture, we're doing what the Lord tells us to do. And then the last 17 years, kind of here in a pluralistic world where I'm having to work with the full community and I've enjoyed that. And there's, there's been really great discussion about those things. People know, I mean, I don't have that I'm a Christian and I have a biblical word, worldview. That's not, I mean, I think everyone knows that. But it's just gotten to the point now where even like our friends, people that I've known for years, are, you know, in absolute disagreement um, with our conviction that um, the need is so great, particularly in foster care, that we need all hands on deck. We need every qualified provider out there recruiting and, uh, and finding and supporting families. And to eliminate one at this time is not, um, is not in the best interest of children. And it's just been one of those things, too, where we had fought so long. And, you know, you, you know, it's been part of the discussion where people always talk about is adoption about, you know, finding the family, a child or finding a child, a family. And we finally reached the place, I think, in the last few decades where we say adoption should be about finding the best family for a child. And so when we talk about changing this and, and elevating the rights of the grownups in this discussion, I think it's we're going back to that old way of saying, you know, it's about the grownups. And I think that's a dangerous path to follow for many reasons. And, um, and yet, you know, I think it's just going to be probably one of my biggest challenges personally um, in navigating um, the pluralistic approach that we try to take to finding solutions for kids and families. And, and I think it's something agencies really need to be on guard about. I think there in Alabama, I don't think right now you have to worry about your license, but, you know, I can tell you, and we talked a little bit about the history earlier of, you know, and that was something even in Alabama where, you know, we had child welfare officials in the licensing department who were very upset that um, we provided like in their mind, a religious test for families. And, you know, they challenged that constantly and we had to constantly have our attorneys remind them that this is something that we can do. So, it, you know, I know you, probably feel a little bit of safety there, but you know, there's always that risk um, that uh, we face. And again, it, I just don't think it's the right thing for kids um, to eliminate quality providers. The faith-based world, if you look at the research, and I think even the secular folks would have to agree with this, but faith-based agencies are the best recruiters um, than, than uh, you know, any other agency. The, the church world and Christian folks are you know, just a rich supply of folks who will step in and fill the gap for these kids and to make it impossible for them to work with faith-based agencies. I just think a lot of folks will um, be too afraid to work with the public sector in that sense. And that's just my opinion. They're, they're good friends and reasonable people who disagree with me on this. Well, you know, as this new administration comes in, and certainly I know a lot of believers look at some of the executive orders that have already come out in the last several weeks and cringe but because you do have a, a nationalistic view what are some good things that you hope can come from the new administration in child welfare 
And, you know, NCFA is just decidedly and purposefully, you know, nonpartisan in this. And so, you know, we have been able to effectively work with Democrats and Republicans and conservatives and liberals. And already we're having discussions with um, particularly members of uh, the new Congress and new, new people who are coming in, the Democratic majority. They have, we've had uh, multiple calls in the recent, uh, well, last week, and we'll have more this week, talking to them about, about the legislation and an opportunity to get something through. Um, you know, a lot of ways, I think some of the child welfare, and again, this is not a partisan statement, but the kind of the, and you know this, the child welfare community identifies very much with, you know, a, a Democrat president and position. And so the idea that um, this administration and this Congress might look at um, some of the issues that are important to us um, is not, a, I mean, I, I actually think that's going to happen. What we may have to, you know, decide with is it something we support very strongly, like adopt uh, citizenship for adoptees. You know, might get embedded in a full immigration policy that accomplishes other things too that um, a lot of people might um, oppose. So, I mean, those are again, we only focus on the adoption part of things. A lot of folks don't. When we talked, we, when we talked about refundability for the adoption tax credit. You know, it was the last paragraph of the Affordable Care Act, which is a controversial piece of legislation, at least for conservatives. But it's the you know had nothing to do with uh, you know a national health care system. But people we were working with um, um, put that as it's the very last paragraph, and it made the adopt it continued the adoption tax credit for another couple of years, and it made it refundable um, in those years. And so you know we didn't even know that. I think we came in the next day and we found out that the adoption tax credit had been preserved and, um, and they made refundable. So again, it's just funny how these things, you know, we always like to think that something, a piece of legislation is going to go into something that makes sense. Um, we've tried to keep the um, citizenship issue separate from other immigration issues because, you know, there is a difference of opinion about those things. Um, but I, I would expect that, um, some, particularly some of the big child welfare initiatives will probably be, because we know COVID has infect, uh, strongly affected kids in foster care and others, would be probably a very sympathetic uh, response to filling some of those gaps and providing funding for organizations that want to um, serve those kids. Um, that's probably going to be in a COVID package if they can find some consensus. But you have to remember, you know, it's a 50-50 tie in the Senate with um, the vice president breaking the tie. And then, you know, it's the, one of the closest margins in the House that folks have ever seen. And so the idea that you can just kind of get legislation through without participation from the other side, it's possible, but it's, you know, probably unlikely. And so hopefully, you know, adoption is one of those political issues that brings both sides together. And, um, you know, and, and so hopefully with what's going on and, you know, the um, President Biden has promised a very ambitious um, plan, um, you know, we would like to see, and it, hopefully we'll see, if not in these first hundred days down the road, an opportunity to, to get some of the um, legislative goals that we have that, have, you know, we've been trying to get for several years now. So kind of as we end, and certainly this has not been an exhaustive list of all that the NCFA does, but how can families stay aware of changes and propose changes that may affect them and connect with NCFA. Well, and Herbie, I know you know this, but it doesn't take a lot of phone calls to a congressional office to get um, an issue 
uh, on a member of Congress's, uh, you know, um, plate. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we're told in most offices, seven phone calls about a topic uh, means that they have to discuss that issue with their boss. And so um, there will be opportunity, I think, to advocate for some of these things. Um, And and it makes a difference. I just, I mean, I, I know we're, you know, keeping this issue alive and talking to the staff in these offices, but a call from a constituent does a lot more. And so we do, we, you know, we are creating an opportunity for legislative alerts. It's a free thing. We don't do any, you can sign up for it at our website at adoptioncouncil.org backslash advocacy. Uh, Folks who want to get an update and then we're going to be able to help with our new website, really help you identify who your member of Congress is and even maybe help you generate either a you know, uh, a letter, an email that might go electronically or give you talking points if you want to make a personal um, outreach um, or call or try to visit with a member of Congress. It just makes a huge difference. And so if you want to see the adoption tax credit made refundable, if you want to see the citizenship issue fixed for international adoptees, you know, we're also working on things like national putative father registries and things like that that would make adoption safer for both birth fathers and for the families who are completing adoption. Um, and then some of the economic things I think that we'll be working on to make sure that they're, you know, um, as they look at always changing the funding sources, we want to make sure that the money that's been promised to support adoption and um, provide support services to families um, who are adopting from foster care, that that money is always there. And, um, because we promised it to these families. And so um, hopefully they won't spend it in an irresponsible way. But yeah, um, be informed. We have a lot of one-pagers. I suspect you do too about some of these issues that folks wanted to kind of study the issue. Calling your member of Congress just makes a huge difference. And it's really not something to be afraid of. You know, it's just, and I used to be terrified of this. I mean, it's, uh, you know, they want you to be, you know, people think they have to be an expert. All you have to do is believe or support something and make that known and it will catch the attention. There are a lot of times I'm asked questions I have no idea about and I just say, I'll, I'll have to get back to you on that. And that's fine. That's part of the process. Um, so, but you just, you know, you, you obviously want to be respectful and friendly and, you know, the same thing that persuades you or, or, or uh, makes you want to hang up the phone you know, is just being polite and kind. And if someone's rude or, or, um, or ugly or, um, you know, then, you know, you're not going to probably get much out of them, but if you're polite and state your case, it's, they listen, trust me that we know that they listen because we'll get a call from an office saying, we've just got, we've gotten, you know, four phone calls from our constituents about this issue. Can you tell us more about it? And then, you know, we will begin a dialogue with that. So it makes a huge difference. It works. And we hope more families, uh, we, we won't be successful if the, if the, if families and other people touched by adoption don't make their opinions known. Amen. Well, Chuck, we thank you for all that you do and all that NCFA does. And want to remind families, you can always get in touch with NCFA at adoptioncouncil.org um, or just look up NCFA on your browser. Get connected to get their legislative updates to learn how you can contact your senator But just like Chuck said, every voice counts. And so make your voice count on so many of these important adoption and foster care legislation. Thanks for joining us, Chuck. Thank you, Herbie.
Thanks for listening to the Defender Podcast. If you enjoy making this podcast a part of your weekly routine, we'd love for you to take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the Defender Podcast to make it easier for more people to find. For more information how you and your church can partner with Lifeline, visit us at lifelinechild.org. If you want to connect with me, please visit herbienewell.com. Follow us at Lifeline on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter by searching for Lifeline Child. You can email us directly at info at lifelinechild.org. Beloved, will you allow God to use the gospel through you to impact the life of a child? Please contact us because we are here to defend the fatherless. We'll see you again next week for the Defender Podcast.